Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering. But if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. Now, get ready for a fantastic conversation with Neil Oliver, a valuable contributor, an open-hearted man, and in particular note how he brings gentle spirit to complex conversations. How are we going to progress to one another if our hearts are closed? We must wake up together. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Hello, Neil. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Yes, I very much enjoyed our last uh, chat. Um, I was, I, I make no, um, I, I, I'm sure I, I don't make any preparations for these things. I just, I'm uh, always excited by the possibility of where the conversation, any conversation might go. Uh, I think that's the, I think that's the joy of these exchanges. Well, Neil, I've prepared enough for both of us, so you don't need to worry. I've got a carefully... You've done some homework. <laughs> It's almost intrusive, actually. It's almost a violation of of the of any privacy act that may yet remain. I've been in that fireplace for, for the last couple of days observing you, and you have not been found wanting. You are a brilliant and wry Gaelic poet. Uh, I, I enjoyed our conversation last time, and I'm interested to talk, as you might imagine, um, more about globalism and more about freedom. And more about, you know, like what my here. Let me tell you this because I sort of because I ask you this because I trust you. Now, over the time that I've been broadcasting in these kind of spaces, I've developed an affinity for what might be called uh, populism that that previously I might have been sceptical about. I have a deep understanding, for example, it, it, why people in Ireland are so frustrated and why they may be considering. You're voting for Conor McGregor. I, I'm sympathetic to nations like the Netherlands, where you're seeing the rise of figures like Geert Wilders, you know, particularly while the Dutch farmers are under such incredible pressure and they're exerting, I say they, and I sort of, by that I mean corporate globalist forces appear to be trying to control agriculture to, in order that people do not have direct access to their own food. That's, you know, that's last bit is, is an assumption, but like, but it's very difficult to deny that centralist global forces appear to be trying to regulate and control agriculture, usually under the auspices of helping the climate. But it just seems that whenever we're helping the climate, we also penalise ordinary people and people's ability to run their own lives. So, But uh, the, the, these were just illustrative examples, Neil, to point out how, you know, once I would have been considered a person that was of the left who would automatically be in opposition to the kind of populist movements that I've already referred to and in some cases listed. Have you always been someone that's affiliated with the right or conservatism? Are you an old school liberal lefty? And how do you feel when you find yourself sort of navigating a new political landscape that seems to be much more about people versus the establishment, periphery versus the centre, rather than left and right as we used to understand it? I've never been um, 
overtly political before. I, I never was. I've never been a card-carrying member of any political party. I was never somebody who who marched or or protested. I I can't honestly say why that was. I think it was probably ultimately down to a, a, a certain a certain kind of laziness. Really, I think I was letting other people get on with things political, and I I do I reproach myself for having been apathetic or or disengaged for as long as I was. But that that said, I would never have characterised myself as being of the left or of the right or of the centre. I didn't I didn't really think of myself in those terms. I'm very interested, that said, in the way in which populist has become a pejorative term. You know, it's bandied about in the same way as, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables and yeah, whatever, white van man. Mm. You know, there's a whole slew of terms that are used uh, to to make people feel bad, isolated one from another, as if their points of view are somehow crude or crass or base. Uh, and I, I, I find that well, fascinating, to put it mildly. Uh, populist just means, as you know, of the people. Um and the way in which that's been maligned is well, I think it's it's unforgivable actually. Uh, and and like you, I do feel a great deal of sympathy for populations all over the place uh, who, in a very short space of time, in the scheme of things, uh, have been left with no alternative but to accept major change, major demographic and and cultural change that they didn't ask for and weren't necessarily ready for, you know, weren't bought so much as a gin and tonic and a bunch of filling station croissants before certain couplings were forced upon neighbourhoods. And and why wouldn't people be uh, alarmed by sudden change? People generally are alarmed by sudden uh, un unasked for change. And I, get, I, I do get very frustrated the way in which people are set against one another. People have been moved, you know, whole whole civilizations all over the world have been deliberately displaced, damaged, carpet bombed, flattened, messed with. People have been unseated and unsettled and are, are on the move as they would be for all sorts of, for as many different reasons as there are people. Uh, and we are all the time invited to get angry with each other rather than where we should be angry, which is with the the, the people up above us who punch down all the time and 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 then encourage us to punch each other so i find I, I'm, I have a great deal of sympathy for everyone because i think we have been collectively messed with en masse for decades yeah decades and i feel like that you know a point in your answer there you touched on the idea of migration and the cultural and social impact of migration interestingly mate and we've got a lot of topics to cover over the course of our conversation we'll talk about how the pandemic uniquely shifted cultural values social attitudes created an acceptance of regulation that didn't previously exist it was a time of unprecedented international deception i feel and international shaming but, but, uh, but uh, and, and those two things are obviously uh, correla correlate uh, but from but before we get into the pandemic and the unique revelations of that 
recent period. I'd like to sort of touch upon Ireland. When we made some content about um, what happened in Ireland and how the rhetoric that was being used to condemn Irish people protesting about migration in the aftermath of, a, of several violent acts involving children and, as reported, um, <clears throat> migrants, or, you know, members of the migrant population. When we put that content up uh, on various sites, YouTube and, uh, of course, our home here, Rumble, I was struck by the number of, uh, like, I noticed Brazilian people that were resident in Ireland, Polish people that were resident in Ireland, saying migration has gotten out of control in this country. Like people, Irish people feel disturbed. There was some brilliant reporting at the time that made it clear that Ireland doesn't have the same kind of trajectory and history as a country like the, the like England or the Netherlands or or any country that has a sort of a colonial past. Ireland, of course, is historically oppressed, and their national ethno their ethno nationalism is a necessary part of their identity as they confronted and opposed external oppressors. I felt. Two things I'd like to point out. It's plain that you can have concerns about migration and not be a racist. It's plain that people do not feel like, as you said, like they are being consulted about the direction of their nation. And it was just something about what happened in Ireland because of the inability to sort of evoke guilt and shame in the same way you might be able to in a country like France or England or the United States, obviously, that, that meant something was revealed to me. And, and what I feel is, is that globalist rhetoric is uh, it's shallow, it's, it's manipulative and it's dishonest. And, and, and then when I started to sort of unpick that, I thought about a lot of the rhetoric around Brexit and a lot of the rhetoric around Trump. And this is something you referred to in your first conversation as well. There's a big, a, a large appetite to condemn people just for having an opinion. And the solution for this can only be democracy because all of this anti-populist rhetoric is predicated on the idea that there should be authoritative institutions that dictate to people the direction of a country. You could call that leadership if you want. But when, you get to, but when there's been as much deception as we've experienced, lately, when there's so much contempt for the population, when there's so much mistrust for the media, uh, you know, are now essentially part of the establishment, it's difficult not to argue that perhaps people should be able to make decisions for themselves, that they shouldn't have information that's kept from them, that they shouldn't be condemned and judged in the sort of way that we've kind of circled around even in the first 10 minutes of our chat. I wonder what you feel about Ireland in particular and how that's relevant when it comes to this issue of globalism versus, no, I won't just say nationalism because nationalism is a pretty freighted term, but perhaps even localism. Well, you're so right about Ireland being a very different case than, say, uh, England, Britain, uh, the Long Island of Britain, you know, a completely different experience and a completely different uh, means of operating in the world historically. Um, it, there is, there's definitely something very pernicious about the way in which everyone is discouraged from daring to hold multiple thoughts in their head at the same time. You know, as you said, you can be simultaneously worried about uh, uh, rapid and mass immigration to your neighbourhood without being, well, at the same time, being a, a, a human-loving, life-affirming, welcoming person. You can, you, can, you can hold those two thoughts simultaneously. You know, that we're, we're constantly invited only to pick a side. Yeah. Just take a line, a single line on every issue. 
And if you don't, if you haven't got the time to think up one yourself, here's a laminated card with all of the pre-prepared uh, lines that you that you might just help yourself to take. Uh, and that that people in Ireland who were who are being who are concerned about the speed at which large arrivals are are coming, they're they're instantly just if they if they raise a voice about that, they're instantly xenophobic. They're instantly racist. They're 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 instantly small-minded, close-minded people, and it's so unfair. And so people knowing that that's going to that's how they're going to be dealt with. That's the way they'll be responded to. They just keep their heads down and and, and tend and prefer to keep their mouths shut. And it's I find that a terrible calumny that's been that's been inflicted. But it's not just true of Ireland. It's true of all sorts of it's there's there's no denying that all over the north of England the you know communities have been radically altered by they're demographically radically altered. And that people are are just discouraged from so much as voicing an opinion about that without being dismissed as some kind of you know racists and xenophobes. And I, I feel it's it, it's it's part of a direction of travel. It's all about the way in which there's not to be any nuance in discourse. There's not to be uh, you know, people having the time to air multiple coexisting points of view without instantly being shouted down for the first thing that you let out of your mouth. I think a lot of us liked the Long Island of Britain as a phrase. Ian Drummo just said that in the chat. I liked that. As well, I wonder if you're familiar with the writing of Martin Gurry, and, and in particular his famous book, uh, The Revolt of the Public, in which he talks about the, how the availability of information that the communications age has brought about, particularly in the last sort of ten years. But or, or, or he notes in 2001 there was as much information published as in all history up to that point, and it's doubled every year since then. That it's such an, an enormous transformation that it in itself demands a change of the way of all. All of our systems of governance, the ability like that. So like if you I suppose it's kind of obvious, isn't it, that whether it's Congress or Parliament or whatever system of government, if it's a, a dem dem democracy in whatever country you're living in, is uh, that is in a way based on a kind of pragmatism. We send a representative to a central point to, to uh, com convey the perspectives of that community that's elected him. Like that, that in itself, like the horse was the technology they were using. The building was the technology they were using. Language was the technology they're using. Uh, he said, Martin Gurry, that now you, the, he, the terms you left and right are redundant now. You should all use establishment versus periphery has come about because it's a taxonomy busting technology. In the last few days, Neil, we've seen um, Elon Musk host spaces on X where figures that are complete pariahs like Alex Jones, Andrew Tate, and talking with a candidate for the Republican Party, Vivek Ramaswamy. And the, yeah, and the world's richest man, you know, or there or thereabouts. And those are all figures that sort of, you know, in the New York Times or on, or on MSNBC or CNN, perhaps with the exception of Musk, just because of this sheer uh, cargo that he uh, wields are persona non grata 
that means now that, that not only do we have two cultures or beyond two cultures, numerous cultures, and, and the, the teleology is that they're moving, the bifurcation has happened and they're splitting and moving further and further apart. If you can have, you know, 2.3 million people watching that, if you have spaces like Rumble where you know, you can have uncensored speech. And then, you know, even places like YouTube have been co-opted and are now ultimately sort of legacy media spaces when it comes down to it. Certainly, you know, take the example of the pandemic, the WHO's laws are uh, or regulations are applied there in the form of the community guidelines of YouTube. What we're experiencing is the inability of centralised authority to control a population, the inability to control information and their obvious prognosis that that is going to lead to either disintegration or decentralization. It's going to lead to dissent. It's already happened. Whether it's Napster, the Arab Spring, Brexit, Podemos, Trump. There's a long list of success, the the Five Star Movement and Beppe Grillo in Italy. There's a long list of dissenters. And I think what we're experiencing is that that they are trying to use the leverage of crisis to reassert control. And people are resisting it. And I think my fear is that crises will continue to escalate until they have the means to impose that control. Do you think, therefore, Neil, that we're at a pivotal moment? And do you think that it It's a a battle that can be won by those of us that are interested in free speech and democracy. Very much so. I believe, you know, Christmas is, we're in the season of Advent, you know, the coming, the imminent arrival of. And people, I've I've heard people more and more than I ever have before using, you know, the word apocalypse seems to be coming into people's conversation quite a lot. And apocalypse is a Greek verb that means um, to take the cover off. Uh, to, to expose, and I think that as you're as you're quoting there, this this um the, this mass access to information has had unintended consequences. You know, I I don't know what was the objectives necessarily or all the objectives when the when DARPA put together the fledgling internet back in the fifties and sixties and so on. I don't maybe they, maybe they genuinely didn't foresee what would be the consequences of so many people having so much, well, hitherto unfettered access to so much stuff and being and being able to draw their own conclusions. And I think that collectively what has happened, I think it's happening faster and faster. You know, there's a kind of a, there's, there's some kind of, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's moving quicker and quicker that the, I do wonder at the extent to which we have lived under an illusion for a long time, even an illusion of democracy, and that the the reality with which we were presented, it, it seems to be falling apart mm. as as more as more and more people are able to access and read more and more otherwise esoteric information. You know, the old edifices like left and right. And 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 the way in which democracy was portrayed and and offered up to us, it's starting to look thinner and thinner, worn out. And there's, I just think there's, I just think there's no doubting that we are at a pivotal point because the whatever you want to call them, the globalists or the or the cabal, I think are exposed. I think we can see them. I don't know the extent to which they mean to be seen or whether they are simply being revealed for what they are, but the, the mask has come away. And 
next year, I think, is going to be a very interesting year going into, obviously, the US elections. And we, and by then, by the end of the year, we won't be far away from our own elections in Britain and all of the rest of it. And I am fascinated by the potential of the, the, the globalists having to finally take the mask off and say, democracy's not what it was. Democracy's gone. You're not having democracy anymore. You're going to have authoritarianism. And that's just <laughs> the way it's going to be. You're, it, al it almost feels as if they're going to have to fish or cut bait. I tell you because... what, sorry to interrupt you, forgive me, but uh, like it, it feels like that is what's happening because have you noticed how much in American media in particular they are talking about dictatorships and tyrants? This is the, the it's almost, we made a joke the other day, it's almost like Shark Week in the United States, but it's Dictator Month because they're continually saying if Trump wins in 2024, he will turn America into a dictatorship, he will exile, he will execute, he will ban elections going forward. And, and like you say, it's I feel that authoritarianism has a different hue than we'd ever intended Anticipated. It's not a progression of the militaristic despotism of the last century. It's, of course, technological dictatorships in the form of the, it is the vision of Bill Gates that we should be fearful of, not the visions of the, the military leaders of Europe and Russia in the last century. And I, you know, and I, I think you're right that 2024 is going to be significant. Guys, if you're watching us on YouTube, we are going to exclusively broadcast now on Rumble. We're going to exclusively stream on Rumble. You'll have to click the link in the description to join me and Neil over there because I'm about to ask him about dictatorship. Is it Trump that's a dictator or is it the current American administration that is trying to create a dictatorship, a dictatorship on behalf of globalism? I'm also going to be asking Neil about what was revealed to us during the coronavirus period. We'll be asking, talking specifically about the AstraZeneca jab being labelled defective, Pfizer being sued by Texas, the lack of authority in the COVID inquiry, and new information that, that suggests or even reveals that the US government paid the media to promote vaccines. Uh, this I'm, I, all of this, Neil, just because you said then that the, 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 our access to hitherto uh, esoteric information means that you can't hold together one consensual public sphere. The public sphere keeps seeming, seemingly infinitely splitting. I am um, another thing that, uh, that that has that has taken shape. Well, I've become aware of it. You know, I'm 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 open about the fact that you know I was I was it's in a state of slumber for for who knows how long before I properly started paying attention to all the things I'm paying attention to. But increasingly, it feels as if we're, we're being discouraged from being seen in the same space as certain people, which is something that it feels like something from another. It's medieval. You know, it's where people were, you know, beyond the pale. People were cast out into outer darkness, into perdition. Do not be seen, or in the communist era, you know, when, you know, where people, if you were seen in the same room as someone, it was as though you picked up their, their contagion of inappropriateness, whether you were interacting with them directly or not. And for me, I've always, anyway, wanted, at times, the company of and to talk to people with what, I suppose you might be described as outlandish ideas. You, you described that that X space, that Twitter space, with what a disparate, unlikely fellowship that was. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, th that lineup that you described. Yeah, you, you wouldn't have expected to see them in the same space, and there they were 
all these people, some of some of whom would, a lot of people would think, oh God, I can't be seen in a photograph with that person because that might that might affect my career prospects, or you know, it might see me being you know debanked or or whatever or whatever. That and that that inducement to stay away from people has the reverse effect on me. That makes me even more determined. And then if I'm being told by the state and the establishment not to be seen with that person, not to talk to that person, that, that, that only makes me t- 10 times more desperate to fight. Why? What is it that you think is going to happen to me if I talk to them, if I listen to them, if I mean, if I breathe the same air as them? And I, th- I think that is part of what you're talking about that's going to fall apart. I, I, it didn't hold together for very long, that idea that some people could be exiled, cast into perdition. I think like me, People are thinking, well, if I'm not supposed to talk to him or her, I'm jolly well going to, because clearly the state thinks I might learn something that they would rather I didn't know. Or, or, or that's the way it affects my psyche. Uh, so so many, I think so many things are becoming harder and harder to hold together. And I think that's what's so difficult for so many people, because we are we are having to reevaluate everything, reevaluate everything. And an old picture has just ceased to serve us anymore. It's worn through. You know, a bright light's been shone on. It's like one of those old masters where you, it turns out that there's another painting behind it because the artist reused the same canvas. It's as if too many people can see that there's something else there that might even be much more interesting. And that, I think, in the in the year ahead and and certainly in the in the short to medium term future, I think the 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 authoritarians or the would-be authoritarians have no other option than to try and censure and silence and label as misinformation and keep people away from uh, information that they don't want them to read. Because the knowledge, the resources, the different points of view, the alternative perspectives that people can readily and easily access and share means that that whole edifice just starts to fall away like confetti to reveal something else behind it. Yes. Even if you take a contemporary and contentious example, like uh, Andrew Tate, you have to genuinely believe that the moral outrage generated by the establishment is, as they say, motivated by his alleged misogyny and indeed the uh, crimes that he is alleged to have committed. Where that begins to break down is in my near certainty that there is no moral authority in the establishment anymore. Indeed, the example of Trump's rise being amplified indictment by indictment is a further indication that even if you put aside your own moral judgment of the whatever figures in question, me, Tate, Trump, Tucker, Rogan, you, whoever they eventually determine they don't like today, you have to say, up until now, what is it about their modality that has led you to believe that they care about feminism, that they care about public health, even without tying it to a condemned or exiled individual? At the advent 
of the coronavirus pandemic. It was my own um, now deeply inculcated cynicism, scepticism and fear of this establishment that guided me. Put into a simple uh, understanding or um, sort of, what do I want to say, framing like this. Hold on a minute. If this is all about the sanctity of life, like we've got to be locked down in our homes, take these medications, social distance, because of the sanctity of life, is this idea that life is sacred playing out generally across our culture? Let's look at it in terms of economics and finance and social regulation and poverty and our moral standards. Just take the issue of homelessness. If life is sacred, what would be one's attitude to vagrancy? What would be one's attitude to a whole host of subjects? So, like you said, you get a kind of intuitive and visceral sense of a kind of glitch that you're being given one set of data and another set of data is deeply felt. Hang on, these people don't care about me. And then time passes and you learn, ah, the AstraZeneca jab, they're suing them. Pfizer's getting sued. The lockdowns were based on modelling, not empirical science. Pfizer never clinically trialled for transmission. They granted indemnity at the beginning. They're not reporting accurately on adverse uh, adverse events. They're reporting people have died of COVID when they died. Near. They're not talking about sudden death. They're not talking about... My- like eventually your one's intuition is verified. They don't care about the sanctity of life. They care about control. Let's go back and look at Trump again. Let's go back and look at Tate again. Let's go back and look at me again. Aha, control. Are any of these figures virulently anti-establishment in some way? Now, like, you know, people who watch our channel a lot know that I enjoy Donald Trump's rhetoric and I enjoy his anti-establishment positions, but I don't think that without significant systemic change and decentralised and the and the and I would say the uh, dis, uh, dissolution of several significant deep state agencies that America can meaningfully change. But I recognise now that these operations care about control, not about the sanctity of life. I'm sorry that I saw you wanted to come in, Neil. I'm sorry I kept talking. Yes. No, it's. I don't believe that there's any that the the people that are that have the temerity to to pontificate and to lecture to is about about you know the sanctity of life. They are in no moral position so to do. As you as you pointed out there, that it's hollow. The people that we are having to listen to are sock puppet hollow. There's nothing there. They don't emanate any credible, any believable um, belief in anything. You know, they just they just have all of the appearance and all of the sound of people who are just working from today's from the contents of today's inbox from from whatever script they're working to. None of it's coming from a, a place of belief. And of course, what happened during the course of the pandemic, it's now apparent that, that there was plenty of advice to the authority figures who laid down the diktats that locking people in their homes was going to be catastrophic. I mean, like you needed the wisdom of Solomon to see that anyway. But there was plenty of uh, uh, strident advice being given behind the scenes saying, don't do this. You don't lock people down like this. Don't separate families. Don't Mm. keep children out of school. Don't do those. Don't do those things because all of the concept. Well, and and so it came to pass that the consequences have been desperate. Likewise, there was plenty of information 
out there in advance, that they knew that whatever, that the injectables hadn't been tested to see if they would stop transmission person to person. There was plenty of suggestion that there were going to be you know, adverse side effects and all of the rest of it. And the things were rolled out anyway. So with three years worth of hindsight or two years worth of hindsight, it's plain that there was no real heartfelt concern for people. And I, I mean, I feel so so desperate at the moment about you know what's happening uh, in uh, Israel Palestine Gaza the fact that the whatever horror unfolded on, on the 7th of October it, it then means that that other other babies have to die not just by the hundreds but by the thousands i can't countenance that i i, I certainly can't condone it Anything, anything where someone says other people's babies have to die because I, I, I don't feel ready to hear the second half of that equation. It, it not if it, if it involves killing kids, I just can't accept it. it there has that can't, you can't do that. I, I don't care. Don't don't take me any further into that. If that is what it means, the deaths of thousands, and that that we're coming into you know the time of Christmas. You know where you know we we're very you know, focused on our kids and our family and how uh, and we're supposed to you know the dissonance of that that we that we celebrate our own children and our own families while simultaneously knowing what's happening to to thousands upon thousands of people in Gaza. I find it makes it makes me feel physically ill. The the thought of it and that there is an there's an anti-human. Agenda. You know, Elon Musk in that space that you talked about. You know, he he talked about he how he wants to see more people born. You know that he is pro procreation. That he you know that he thinks that the 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 populations of the world are are in steep decline and that depopulation, not overpopulation, is going to be the the existential crisis that we'll face in the in the decades and centuries ahead if we don't get out of this tailspin. And and I don't feel that in the the, the authority figures have any love of life that they have any love of our species at all such that i think that so much of what is being done and will be done in the future will come from that place of thinking people aren't worth it anyway we avoided god from the heart of our systems i think that we coasted on materialism and rationalism undergirded by clear progress in areas such as technology and medicine we forgot perhaps that we had neglected and allowed to atrophy that aspect of the spirit that makes all other progress notable valuable and worthwhile anyway what you said uh, before uh, 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 about uh, October the 7th and subsequent action is, I suppose, what it would sound like if you had irrefutable principles and values at the core of your system. Now, of course, I think we know what the arguments are that, you know, that are continually made like by people advocating for Israel's right to defend herself. And those those kind of arguments, I'm sure, have a great deal of validity if you're personally affected or ideologically or religiously affected. And I've tried throughout this to maintain a position where I can continue to be useful. And I try to simultaneously hold in my mind the people that have been affected by, uh, from a variety of perspectives when it comes to that issue. And, and I try my best with all issues. But what is irrefutable is that if we don't have anywhere in our institutions 
the kind of simple principles like actually the sanctity of human life. Like the reason that we have to preserve our society is because we are, the, the, for us, the killing of children is unconscionable. Like, they, like if that, I suppose, if, if we don't have that within the values that we're purporting to protect or espouse, then... In a sense, all that's left, and I think we've touched on this before, is a kind of escalating tribalism and, you know, let the devil take the hindmost because there is no... You know, like, and so the reason that I try on this channel to continually talk about, you know, like the, to talk about the presence of God, like there, are, there is a highest principle. There are values that are transcendent. There are things that are worth sacrificing our life for. There are things that are worth sacrificing revenge for. And that it can't be enough to say that, well, if you found your yourself in this position and then, um, then you would you know if there was an intruder in your home if you were similarly aggrieved I, I, I sense that throughout our culture and, and far less incendiary issues than the conflict in the Middle East we're being invited to pursue our lowest values we're being invited to engage with our lower selves I as an addict in recovery I cannot help but note how often the media and uh, professions connected to commerce marketing advertising continue continue to solicit fear desire objectification of the body or, or many sacred aspects of life humor sexuality continually are objectified and mobilized in order to in a certain a sense uh, desacralize our and the, the, the desacralize us and promote our animal nature both fear and desire i would say being almost uh, uh, atavistic aspects of our pre our pre-civilized or pre-evolved or pre-awakened nature we need all of that but we we've had whatever it is 300 400 years of science and like a new shiny bubble, you know, would be our our species have, has been transfixed by science. All it can do, and I'm not I'm not denigrating that or running it down for a moment. It's it's astonishing what science and and then technology have delivered unto us in in the in the recent centuries. But it has also provided an incomplete picture. You know, the thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine and all that. There there there's there are other questions which science cannot and does not address itself to and and therefore there are there are answers that science will not give us and with with the, the dark side of great works like darwin's origin of species was that once and for all the people of the west were invited to think that well we're, we're nothing special uh, we're not uh, you know we're not the work of a creator god uh, we're the we're we're part of a of a of a mindless process of evolution, and we we've just kind of happened because we you know we kind you know some of our ancestors had characteristics that gave them an advantage in a in a in an ecological niche and so on and so on, and and the the dark traveling companion of, of that uh, uh, undermining of that kind of uh, sanctifying of, of the human species was eugenics and all that that led to you know if, if humans are nothing but other animals. Uh, the accidents of, of evolution, the accidents of a process, then we, might we not experiment on them the same way mm. we experiment on any other animals? And so, so science takes as well as gives, and unless and until it, it, people are simultaneously invited to uh, eat from another menu at the same time, you know, to draw upon other flavors, which are different and separate from 
what science and technology delivers, but we still need them. You know, man cannot live by bread alone, as it says in Deuteronomy. You know, we we need we need more. And my experience over the last two or three years has been I've, I've been receiving thousands of letters. People started sending letters to me without an address on them. People send letters to you know the the, the hairy guy in Stirling, and <laughs> and they come to me, but you know, and so on and so on. And and the, the the envelopes are funny, but inside the content is heartfelt, and and sometimes many times has brought me to tears. And a lot of it is about faith. At least three quarters of the people writing to me have declared themselves as being people of faith. That it was the faith that enabled them to say resist the 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 vaccine products, it enabled them to stand up to employers that were threatening them with this, that, and the other. They quote scripture to me. They talk about the battle between light and dark, good and evil, and the the sheer weight of it, the deluge of that kind of thinking from so many people from all over the world, has has meant that I have kind of renewed my comfort in having those conversations. I, I had muted almost an asp a, a, a conversation that I, I instinctively wanted to have and to be a part of. And I, I know that you talk on here about spirituality in all its many forms, everything that that means. And I feel the need of that. And I think if you don't have that, if that if that component of of life is not welcomed into the uh, into the daily consciousness, then we are the less. We are made the less for it, and we will we will function far more happily if that other aspect of of our of our natural thinking is if room is made for it once more. Neil, it's so beautiful to talk to you, and I could talk to you for another couple of hours if I wanted to make people on my team have a mental breakdown because we've got to go and record some other content <laughs> immediately. Um, loads of you joining us on lockdown. I'm sorry I didn't get to pass on your questions. I really am, but um, I'm just like, there's so many good ones from Judy Denmark, Kay Cotois, Seek Easy, Jobs Dog, Vivian Carlo, Sunpatch Patriots. So many good questions, but um, our day got a little bit out of control. I, I do apologize. Neil, um, I, I do stay on because I've got something to ask you, but that was beautiful as always thank you so much for bringing both poetry reflection gentleness kindness to the political uh, to a political conversation that sometimes can feel extremely bombastic and and i think that from bombast we won't get resolution we won't get progress we won't get the kind of synthesis that's required for us to move forward thank you for being a gentle contributor to a complex debate neil and thank you for coming on stay free today Thank you for making space for me. I look forward to talking to you again, Russell. If you want to see more from Neil, you can see him on GB News on YouTube. You can follow him on X using his name at the Coast Guy and his new book, Hauntings, a book of ghosts and where to find them across 25 eerie British locations is out now. 